The Deviation Podcast. Welcome to the Deviation Podcast. My name is Paige, and I'm here today with Mike Glover. Just to tell you a little bit about the Deviation Podcast, this is the premiere episode, and I'm here to hopefully inspire you. I'm interviewing people who I admire, people I feel have led extraordinary, unusual lives, who have deviated from their original plan. And they inspire me like nobody's business, so I'm hoping it does the same for you and also perhaps helps to engender some compassion for people who have led different lives than you and and, and me for that matter. Um, and thirdly, I'm hoping that this, this helps you to realize that the people that are super successful, the people that are so much further in life than you might feel that you are, that they haven't always been this quote-unquote perfect and incredible, that they've struggled with many of the same things that you and I have. So that's the premise here. And like I said, today I'm here with Mike Glover. And would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, how's it going? Um, my name is Mike Glover. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm actually the owner and CEO of Philcraft Survival. Uh, I spent the majority of my life uh, in the U.S. Army from the ages of 17 uh, really to the last couple years ago where I uh, transitioned off of active duty after 18 years of service and then started doing contracting and then started a company called Philcraft Survival where I teach uh, civilians, military, law enforcement all about how to survive in the modern space, which is, I guess, what me and you live in today. So yeah, thanks for having me on this premiere episode. It's a pretty <laughs> big deal. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, so... Really, I'd just love to hear your whole life story. How is it that you have become who you are today? Where did it all start? Um, so I, you know, it started really, I was, you know, I, was, I grew up in a military family. So I always put, you know, I've done my bio in the military a, a lot. But this is actually the first time I've been interviewed about it. But I always correlate my life with military service because I grew up that way. My dad was in the Army. My uncle was in the Navy. Um, you know, my all the way back to my great grandfather that, you know, was a general in the civil war. And so I had this lineage of military service. So it's kind of like how I base the foundation of my life is playing soldier, you know, acting out that role. And so it's really all I knew. So when I became an adult, uh, which for me was, you know, joining the army at 17, um, it's really all I knew and wanted to be. So my life, in a nutshell, when it began, I was born at Fort Ord, California, which is a military installation in California. And I was raised the first part of my life in Germany where my dad was stationed. My mom um, met my father in Korea when he was stationed there. And so uh, grew up in that environment. My dad separated from the military and moved us to Daytona Beach, Florida. Uh, I joined the army when I was really young, when I was 17 years old as an infantryman and then spent really the um, the majority of my life, 18, 20 years in the military, um, you know, all the way from E1, which is a private with no rank at all, all the way to Sergeant Major uh, in Special Forces. Uh, 
um, up until recently, a couple years ago, when I when I got out and started decided to start field cross survival. Now you went all over all of that like yeah. eighteen twenty year time span super quick. Yeah. Um. So you start when you were seventeen, yep. and reading up on you a little bit, it sounded like you became a sergeant at like age twenty. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That I, so I joined the army when I was seventeen, and in the infantry. If you're fast tracking is what it's called, meaning you're you're not messing up, um, you're doing well, um, you could make rank fast. So I went from E1, which is, again, no rank at all. There's actually no rank designation. You, you get your first, it's called mosquito wings when you're in E2. And so I was E1, 17 years old, got promoted in basic training because I was a squad leader, and then worked my way through the ranks, you know, going to airborne school, getting my expert infantry badge, uh, getting my ranger tab, um, becoming a tomb guard at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And then when I was 20 years old, I was actually, um, I just turned 20 and I became a sergeant in the Army. So I was an infantry team leader as an E5. So, yeah, I started young. So you did all of that before the age of 20? Yeah, yeah, it was quick. It was a quick learning curve. I didn't have a lot of time in my life. You know, like, like I said, leading up to that, you know, the foundation for me was, uh, military service is something I practiced as a child my entire life. So going from practice where I played soldier to actually being able to execute, you know, that childhood dream for me was an easy day. And so uh, I had been rehearsing for it my entire life. And then when I got into it, it was the only thing I wanted to do. So I wasn't distracted like most young men at 18, 19 years old with women, with bars, anything else. I was that guy who's that weird guy who was like rucking uh, on the weekend while everybody else was going to the club, you know, running by the clubs in PT uniform and physical training uniform, um, trying to be a better soldier than I was anything else. So wow. it started young. Yeah. So was it what you thought it would be? I mean, growing up, you had this idea of what you're about to walk into and did it live up to those expectations initially? It, it you know, initially it didn't, honestly, I, I, it's crazy because I'm not, these are the first time, the first, these are really good questions because I've never thought about this stuff before. But initially it wasn't because when I played soldier, I played uh, going to war. I played combat. And when I joined the army in 1997, uh, when you weren't even probably born. I was, I okay, was. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, when I joined the army so young, I, there was no war going on. You know, it was, it was before 9-11 obviously. And uh, we were a peacetime army. And so garrison was the concentration, which means that basically all the priorities weren't tied to combat. They were tied to what the army looked like when you weren't at war, which is a concentration on uniforms, dress and appearance, customs and courtesies, schools and training. And so I expected to hit the ground running and find myself propelled into war and into combat and nothing was going on. And so I tried my best in a garrison army to do all the things that I needed to be better and prepared for, which were all the things that I tried to accomplish, which again, airborne school, ranger school, even being a guard at the tomb where I was learning the discipline, uh, those were important foundations for me to be a better, more evolved soldier. Would you talk more about uh, being a sentinel at the guard of the unknown, at the tomb of the unknown soldier, excuse me? Yeah, you know, the. The Tomb of the Unknowns, it's, it's crazy because 
I never get asked this and I rarely bring it up because it's just, it, it's such a small glimpse, but had a huge impact, but not a lot of people know that. I mean, not a lot of people know that about me, but yeah, I was a guard at the tomb of the unknowns, you know, the, the, the old guard, which is the third infantry regiment, which is the oldest infantry regiment, the oldest unit in the United States army that's active, started guarding the tomb of the unknowns in the twenties. It's actually been guarded, um, since 1948, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, forever, um, up until the point now where it's still being guarded at this hour. And so uh, it's a great honor to guard the Tomb of the Unknowns. And I knew that you had to be an elite individual or soldier, and it's something that I wanted to try. And, you know, the Tomb of the Unknowns is a memorial in Arlington National Cemetery, um, which houses the interned unknown remains of the World War I unknown, the World War II unknown, the Vietnam unknown, the Korean War unknown. And actually when I was there in 1997-ish time frame, the Vietnam unknown was disinterred. His unknown remains were disinterred and they identified who he was. He was actually a Vietnam F-4 Phantom pilot who was shot down um, in Vietnam. They did DNA testing and identified him as Major Michael Blassie. He was an Air Force pilot. And uh, the family opted, they had the option, but they opted to have him disinterred and buried in his home uh, city of St. Louis. And he was, you know, I did the actual disinterment ceremony before I became a tomb guard and then uh, started guarding the Tomb of the Unknowns. And the Tomb of the Unknowns, you know, it takes seven to nine months to earn your tomb identification badge. It's the second least awarded badge in the United States military behind the astronaut's badge. And currently there's five, 600 badge holders since the history began of creating tomb cards. And I'm badge holder number 470 out of uh, 600 or so uh, tomb guards. Um, the attrition rate's high, you know, it's a difficult task and undertaking. I actually had an uncle um, who, his name's Mike Duke, he's a retired command sergeant major in the infantry, who was a tomb guard before me. And he was actually the uh, head of the tomb guards, uh, which is the, um, uh, basically the platoon sergeant in charge of the guards um, before, you know, I came into the military. And so everybody knew, like I was, Uncle Duke was his, my uncle, I was Uncle Duke's nephew. And so there was a big prestigious, you know, big shoes I had to fill. Yeah, no yeah. kidding. That's pretty cool. So did he kind of tell you about what it would be like or what what made you interested in wanting to go down that path? Well, you know, it's interesting. You know, I actually, I was watching something uh, that I did recently with uh, uh, BCM. Um, and it was an interview talking about uh, leading up to the old guard, how I got in the old guard. Because you got to get recruited to go in the old guard. You get recruited out of basic training. I wanted to join Ranger Regiment um, back then. And Ranger Regiment has three battalions, uh, first, second, and third battalion. And I actually had a Ranger contract going in the Army. But I didn't realize it at the time, but I became an 11 Hotel, which is a heavy weapons, anti-tank infantryman, because they chose that MOS or that job specialty for me. I had no choice. I didn't realize it until it was too late. Um, it's not like I had a lot of say. It's the Army. You kind of do what they tell you to do. But there was no 11 hotels in Ranger Regiment. So I had two options. I had the option of going to Fort Lewis, Washington and becoming 11 hotel, which I had no interest in doing, or 
going to the old guards, 11 Bravo, where they made me an infantryman, and then having the option to go Special Forces or uh, Ranger Battalion after my, my time in service at the old guard. So that's what I chose to do. And then how, how was that? I mean, I've done some research on it, and it's, it's intense. I mean, the level of discipline required to be in that... I mean, the level of discipline required to just get through training is... I feel like I could safely say what most Americans don't have even half of. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, but the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, the training that I went through... The seven, it takes seven to nine months. I was on the tail end of it. I was the nine month tomb guard, which means it just took longer for me to earn my tomb identification badge. Look, you have to memorize 28 pages of knowledge on the cemetery and the history of the tomb verbatim. So you literally have to stand in front of a, a guard and you say, page one, guard of honor, tomb of the unknown soldier. And you go through 28 pages of uh, memorized knowledge. You have to have um, sections where you are, are um, measured based on your uniform, based on how perfect you are when you walk, when you change the guard, how good you can count to 21. All these small tasks that made it, in my military career, the most difficult thing I've done. Honestly, Special Forces selection and assessment was not as difficult as being a tomb guard. It's the hardest really? thing I've been through. Yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt. It is the most difficult thing that I've ever been through in my life. I had no life for the entire time that I was at the Tomb of the Unknowns. My life was guarding the tomb. I worked a fireman schedule, which is I worked day on, day off, day on, day off, day on, and four days off. And all those days off was spent prepping for the next day to guard the Tomb of the Unknowns. And you, you earned the right to guard the Tomb of the Unknowns. It was never a given privilege. It was a right that you were not entitled to. And so every day was spent getting, you know, we call it smoked, where you're just getting put through physical punishment, uh, memorizing knowledge, trying to be perfect. The attrition rate is unbelievable. I mean, I, I would say that it's probably less than 5% attrition rate, I mean, or 95% attrition rate. Um, and to have that longevity of taking nine months in something you know, ranger school was 70 something days and I could do anything for 70 something days. Nine months, that's knowing that every single day is gonna, is gonna hurt and it's gonna be painful and you're gonna be sleep deprived and uh, have no life, it, it was difficult. And it's, it's, it was challenging to say the least. How did you stay focused through all of that and get through it? I, I think really, you know, my mom, uh, who's very disciplined and who taught me a lot about life, um, set me up to really be in a position to commit. And I, I was, I think I'm a committed individual. Like when I commit my mind to something, there's nothing that can stop me. And so I knew there was no other option besides being successful. And I didn't have distractions. Most young adults at that age, had distractions. I ran away when I was 16 years old. I lived on my own uh, for almost a year by myself and before I even joined the army. I joined the army on my own. I got my grandmother signed um, my you know, permission to go into the military. And so I was always fiercely independent, but never um, distracted with typical things young men would be distracted with. I was into combatives, I was into martial arts, I was into these outlets that allowed me to be disciplined 
and then at that time, uh, I didn't have much going on except the commitment to, you know, dedicate my life to that, that job and that role. So that's what I did. Do you feel like the other stuff just didn't matter to you? Like it just didn't have the same draw to you that it had to other young men at your, at like at that time? Or was it more just that you saw through those things and you could see the bigger picture? That's a good question. I, I think it was the latter. I think I saw strategically, I, you know, I even using the word strategic with my life is how I thought back then. Cause I knew there was a bigger and broader plan. I knew that, um, where I wanted to go in my military career was I wanted to be the best. I wanted to be the most elite that I could be. And I knew that every single thing that I did leading up to that moment was a stepping stone, uh, not to, you know, not to equate the two million nodes as a stepping stone, but to equate it to the fact that it was the beginning of a long career and a life um, that I was committed to. And so all the other little things that happened, um, there would be a time and place. And at that time, it wasn't the time or place. So. And then from there, where did you go? So interesting enough, um, I, I actually... I sustained an injury on active duty that you know wasn't it wasn't related to combat. It was a training injury, um, and decided actually to separate from the military because I I wanted to go to college and I wanted to become an officer in the army. I actually wanted to go to West Point. I actually applied to West Point and got denied. I don't think I've ever told I only told a couple people in my life that, but I applied, and you know it's a congressional appointment or you got to have a special in. Well, I was a kid from. Fayetteville, North Carolina, and Daytona Beach, Florida, and so, so to get an appointment in West Point was a pretty big deal, and it, it wasn't in the cards for me, and so, um, I went to Fayetteville Technical Community College, and my actual get out of the army date was September 9th of two thousand one, so I was on terminal leave, which is you get at that point sixty days of vacation time, so I was already in college um, when I got out of the military. And when 9-11 happened, I actually was in Fayetteville Technical Community College, and that changed everything. That really changed my world. So did you want to get out? I mean, I understand there was an injury, but how do I say this? If 9-11 had happened prior to your injury, would you have said, you know what, okay, like do whatever you need to do with the hospital, get me ready, I need to be out there? Like, would you have had a different reaction? 100%. I think if... Uh, 9-11 happened prior or any time during that period, I would have stayed in. In, flat, in fact, a buddy of mine that I went to ranger school with, we, we decided we were, gonna, we were gonna re-enlist or re-up in the army, go to sniper school en route to ranger battalion. We had that option. We were squared away, we were both E5s, um, and we had the opportunity. I, because I got injured, I didn't follow through with that plan. My buddy did. While I was in community college trying to get back into the army after 9-11, he was jumping into Afghanistan with 3rd Ranger Battalion as a sniper. And that, I mean, I get chills just thinking about that because one, I'm proud of him for his service and what he did. But for me, remembering how that felt to be sitting at home, living off my GI Bill in an empty house that I was renting, knowing that there was a war going on in the background and I wasn't there to be part of it, 
was devastating. And so, I mean, I was in panic mode trying to do everything I could to get back in the military. I bet. Yeah. So how did, how did you get back in? It was tricky. It was, it was difficult because they, you would think that the military, um, would enable guys who get out to come back in, especially if they have honorable service, they have certain skill sets, but it's almost uh, the complete opposite. They make it difficult for guys that are coming back in. It's a numbers thing. I don't know. I don't know why the system is like that, but it was difficult. I actually almost went back into the military um, as a combat controller. When I went to the Air Force recruiter after visiting the Army recruiter and getting basically shunned because um, they told me there was a timeline and everything else, I remember how professional the Air Force was. I went in there. There was a guy in a suit and tie. He, he I had told him that I was an E-5. 20 years old, um, became an E-5, was Airborne Ranger qualified. At this time, I was 21 years old. And he was like, hey, man, let me make a call. He picked up the phone, and he actually called the Combat Control PJ, their Special Operations Schoolhouse. He said, hey, I got a guy here. He's a former 11 Bravo infantry guy, Airborne Ranger. Can we get him um, waived on the selection course that's required of all pararescue and combat controllers prior to going to their training. They said, yeah, absolutely. If he's 11 Bravo 2 Victor, which is Airborne Ranger qualified infantryman, he could do that. He can go straight into the pipeline. And I was like, damn. I was like, that's awesome. That's amazing. And so I was willing to sign the paperwork right then. And he had to do some paperwork. I started training for what's called the PAST PT test, which is the Air Force Pararescue Combat Controller PT test. And then uh, the next day, the Army called me and said, We're, we have a date for you. And, yeah, it was mind-blowing. And, so did you know, they hear from the Air Force that that was going on? So probably they- not. I think it was a cue. I, I think it was – I think at that time, the acceleration because of 9-11 mm-hmm. had probably propelled the recruiting numbers because at the, at the point in which I was communicating to the um, recruiters was a day – after 9-11. They didn't know what they were even doing. They didn't even know what was taking place. And I'm assuming based on the need, which was on active duty, stop losses were taking place. They weren't letting people off active duty. So for me, um, I was just a number in a queue and they said, hey, we need guys, prior service, let's get them in here. And they opened the door for me. And so I took advantage of it. So then you wanted to stick with the army like that was that your goal or like would you were you happy were you how do i phrase this were you happy that the army had called back or were you more looking forward to the air force like where were you at at that moment you know it's, I, at the time i actually was happy that the army called me but you know reflecting on that life i you know i always wonder you know how it would have been if i became a combat controller what's interesting is there's not a lot of us but i was actually a special forces army guy who was a joint terminal air controller. I was a, actually a combat controller for the army special forces side. And there aren't many of us because it's not our expertise. We go to a school and, um, it's a difficult school. It's the only school that I really almost failed, um, in special operations, um, because it's very technical and it's outside of our scope, um, communicating with birds and everything else. But, I was excited. I mean, I was, I'm an army brat. I grew up in the army. The army, I think, runs through my blood. And so um, when they called, I was satisfied. I was happy. And so what happened next? 
so I joined the army and um, I went in and I obviously didn't have to go to basic training or anything. I actually showed up to training for um, special forces selection. I like went straight into it. I mean, I was a college student and three weeks later, I was at Camp McCall going through special forces selection. So what's the timeline here? Because so you said you got injured in training. Was that right? Yep. And then like how how far back was that? So I went to selection. So 9-11 happened and then we were doing the processing. They couldn't let me back in. Um, I had to reprocess basically. Mm -hmm. And so the spring of 2002, uh, which is, you know, a little bit after 9-11, I was in selection. I went to Special Forces selection. So months later, it wasn't a long time. Because I remember think, thinking, look, looking back at the timeline on the preparation, I didn't have a lot of time to prep. Luckily, I was fit from the um, my prior service and being in the military, and I took it very seriously. So for me, it was just a train up, a small train up. But I didn't have a lot of time. I remember them saying, hey, are you ready? And I went down and I actually took a, it, basically it's an assessment prior to assessment to see if you're ready. And they, they have a Green Beret teamed up with you to go through this process. And I remember the guy they teamed me up with ran like nine, 10 minute, two mile runs, which is insanity. I mean, that's like, I mean, this guy was like known to break records and running. He was just a beast. And they teamed me up with him and I'm like, oh, I don't know if I could... Like I didn't think I was capable, and one of the big tests was navigation and rucking. Rucking was my strength. I mean, at the time I was 200 plus pounds, and putting a 45 pound ruck on my back, I could run with a ruck for 12 miles. Like I was a very talented rucker, and so I know this dude was talented. And so when we did the 12 mile ruck for time, he went with me, and I just took off running, and he ran with me for 12 miles. And he's like, I've never seen anybody run like that. You're ready to go to selection. And the next class, which was the next month, I went to selection. So it was very fast. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So what was the selection process like? So when I went through the selection process was uh, approximately three weeks of um, individual assessment where there's a lot of psychological evaluations, a lot of tests that test aptitude. Um, basically a battery of tests, even interviews. And then you go into a process where you're individually test, tested on your physical capabilities as, as an individual. So army physical fitness tests, uh, rucks, runs, obstacle courses. And then you go into a, a individual phase of navigation. You know, the Navy uses the water as a discriminator. Um, to filter or weed through its candidates. The Army uses land, uses navigation, because it's a very technical task that you need to be able to uh, complete day and night, and it's all based on your own individual skill sets. There's no support mechanisms. So it's not like I could be in the woods and I'm lost and I can go, hey, find a guy and he's gonna bail me out. It's all on your own. So it's a, you know, it's a individual task that tests physical capability, but also a lot of your mental fortitude and willingness to you know move forward and never quit. After that, the final culmination kind of exercise is team week, where you walk uh, with a team of guys for a long period of time. I think we covered uh, seventy-two kilometers, which is a lot of miles. I don't even know what that that mileage math is. It took us week a week of walking, 
and you know everybody's feet are hamburger when you're done and you know and then at the end they do a whole bunch of a series of uh, evaluations on your leadership ability your ability to be a team player and then uh at the end they board you and they see if you're good enough and if you're good enough that's the beginning of your future uh in training for the qualification course it's called where you go through 18 months of training which is obviously a longer road to the means so then during that initial part of training was there any moment where you were just like this this is hell like i don't know if i can actually get through this you you know i I actually didn't have that bad of moments where I was like, this is the worst thing I've ever been through. Cause I expect the worst and everything. Like I'm like, this is going to be really bad. And so that way when things aren't that bad, I'm like, huh, it's, it's pretty good. It's not that bad. But there was, there was a couple instances where I remember, especially in team week where people, I remember seeing grown men cry for the first time, uh, that were hardcore infantry guys or just just guys that I looked up to as a young guy and they were just getting broken down physically which was obviously affecting their mental capacity to push through I remember specifically there was a sergeant first class which you know on the on the low end you could be a specialist you know that goes through a young guy and then you have senior guys like a sergeant first class who, who would be your platoon sergeant in the regular army but he's going through you going through with you as a peer and so I remember I was a team leader for one of the team events and we had poles that we put on the back of our rucksacks and we had to carry ammunition crates and boxes to a finish line. And so it was like a strategy evaluation where they say, hey, here's a whole bunch of equipment, figure it out and then move with it. And I remember every time we sat down to what's called rucksack flop, which is a resting position where you sit on your butt with a rucksack, the pole would bounce off the ruck and hit him in the back of the head. And I remember the first couple of times it happened, it was just like aggravating. But then we were broken down, so physically broken down that I remember looking at him and it bounced and hit him in the back of the head and he kind of looked at me and then like tears filled in his eyes and he kind of whimpered. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> like it's getting real right now. Like people are being broke down. And at the very end of my team week, uh, it was, it started to rain. It was almost like a movie. It was crazy. It, was, it started to rain. <laughs> one of the guys forgot his weapon, which is a rubber dummy. He forgot it. He left it behind. And so the instructor picked it up and he's like, you don't want your weapon. And he threw it in the woods. And I remember it's like a, it was in slow motion. And then where everybody's looking at him and then he tells him to low crawl to it. So he low crawls to it with like, you know, a 65 pound ruck on his back. We all have rucks on our backs. We're smoked. And it's just, it's storming. <laughs> it was like a train wreck. And then all of a sudden it's over. You know, it was done and we had finished. And I remember driving back in the deuce and a half, which is a big truck, army truck. We're all in the back just looking at each other. You know, half the guys are in tears. I was the team leader for the last event. I'm like, I hope I did well. But I'm like, man, that was, that was what suck. You know, we call it embrace the suck. That was what suck was. That, that was, that was like a, a pinnacle moment where I was, everybody was suffering and I saw what it looked like, you know, and, um, at that time, you know, I thought I did pretty well compared to some of the things that I saw. So how did you lift everybody up? Because as a team leader, like it's your job to make sure people are full steam ahead, right? Yeah, it's, that's an interesting question. Cause you know, it depends on, there's a varying degree of personalities that you'll find in life. 
and in the, especially in the military, we're not all programmed the same. So you have to find different incentives for different people. And that's what I was forced to do is figure out how to motivate different kinds of personalities, different ways, but in a team setting. And that's one of the most challenging things you can do as a team leader or a leader in any capacity, let alone the army. And so for me, it was a, a combination of uh, clear, concise guidance, um, task organizing my strengths and my weaknesses, meaning putting the right people in charge of the right positions and taking the wrong people out of those positions to not hinder the overall effort of the team and continue to motivate them on the fly. Be the, be the one who's uh, taking the majority of the burden of the physical pain, uh, even the mental duress uh, away from the team and show them that I'm the buffer for that. Show them that I'm willing to suffer more than all of them combined in order for the team to meet the mission goal or objective. And so those are, those are things that have been instilled in me as a young person. And so they were easy for me to translate through in a team event. And so I think that's why ultimately I was successful. So was it almost easier, even though you had a lot more on your back, was it almost easier for you to get through those situations being a team leader because you knew so many people were relying on you? A hundred percent. I think that that actually is a tactic in, in uh, lead, leadership um, inside of the infantry and special operations, which is when you're in charge, you have this burden of responsibility. But executing that burden, meaning delegating, uh, figuring out ways to solve problems, um, becomes a source of energy for you. Like I always, it's funny because even when I was young, a young team leader or a young specialist, I always wanted to be in charge. Not because I was like egocentric, but because I felt like I knew the better solution. And so if I was in charge, I could let people suffer less by somebody who didn't have a source solution or a good solution. And so I always wanted to step up, not because, uh, only because I wanted to uh, support the group and I thought I, you know, I could figure it out. I was good at problem solving. And so I thought, you know, obviously this is a learn, part of it's learned. The part of it was how I was raised early on in my life with uh, my family. So were you one of the youngest people in in this training? At the time I was, yeah. I, I mean, I was 22 at the time, um, which is definitely young. There's been younger guys to go through it. Um, but at that time, which uh, when the, the war had just kicked off, I was one of the younger ones in the squad. Just like I was when I was in basic training. I mean, I was... I was a squad leader through the entire, which isn't a big deal. I mean, if somebody heard me say it who was in the infantry, they'd be like, yeah, whatever, dude, you're a squad leader in basic training. But for me, being a squad leader in basic training and being recognized for it and being promoted because of it was significant for me because I was 17 years old. I was a child and I was telling 20 something year old guys to suck it up and drive on to it's going to be okay, consoling them. Like, you're going to be with your kids and your family soon. Like, we just got a couple more weeks. All these different challenges that I faced at an early stage in my military career. And then shortly after that, you were, you were guarding the Tomb of the Unknowns. So then you got all of the mental toughness to get through everything else. I think so. I think partly the reason I was able to be successful in special operations is because of the discipline 
that I learned at the tomb, um, we would call it in humble reverence, which is the fact that I could stand completely still in a hundred degree heat with a hundred degree humidity in a wool military uniform with gnats stuck to my face with bee, a bee bouncing between my eye and my, the inside of my aviator sunglasses and not move. And the fact that I could get through those worst times in different environmentals, um, in, in, in really an austere environment, isolated with only my own thoughts, was something that had a huge impact on me for the rest of my career. And you know, not a lot of tomb guards become special operations guys. There's only a few of us actually. But a lot of tomb guards go on to do uh, great things in life because I think of the discipline that was earned um, at the tomb. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but am I right in that the badge that you earned at the Tomb of the Unknowns can actually be revoked, like at any point? That's absolutely correct. So is that... Even as a civilian. Like if you do anything unethical, if you do anything that's um, deemed, um, you know, illegal or against the morale or ethic that the tomb stands for, your badge could absolutely be revoked. And then they just erase your name and put another badge that says revoked on the on the tomb guard. And there's a, in the tomb quarters uh, that's in front of, that's in the plaza in front of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, there's a plaque that's the size of a wall, the length of a wall, and every tomb guard's name um, is etched up on an individual plaque in the tomb quarters. So is, has that fact, knowing that that could be taken, shaped your decisions throughout your life? No, not necessarily. I think, like, I, I am, have always been who I was, like, or in who I am. And so that, that never had a precedence because I, it's not, that's not an incentive for me. It's not a deterrent for me. Um, what is, is doing good things now. You know, like I, the, the cool thing I think about it, your intro that you talk about is that you describe people as not being uh, these perfect people. And that's something that I've always uh, believed in, that nobody is perfect. And, uh, but as long as you understand that, as long as you have the humility and the empathy to understand that you're not perfect and nobody is, then you could truly self-assess yourself and then where you're going. So you could be better tomorrow than you were today. I think that's a great life philosophy to have. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, I think that life philosophy, which is more along the lines of self-assessment, like uh, self-realization, um, has helped me the most uh, in being successful at whatever I'm trying to accomplish. And you've been hugely successful in, I, I, you, I know, you're, you're incredibly humble, so you won't agree with what I'm saying, but you have been hugely successful in everything that you've done. I mean, like the level that you've reached in the military and the level that you've reached outside of the military are completely awe-inspiring. Well, if you told me, if you asked me how many successful and great things that I've done in the military, I could probably tell you um, not many, but if you asked me how many things that I've done wrong or how many things that I wish I would have done better, I could probably talk for days about it. Um, 
that's kind of perspective based. Um, I know that I'm changing things and perspectives and ways, um, but I don't equate that to success because I think um, success is an end state that you define as being the end of your objective. And so I don't think I'll ever quite sit anywhere and say that I've been successful or that I'm, I'm being successful. I would more align my perspective with the fact that um, I'm doing my best and eventually um, how that's assessed after I'm gone will be the determination of my success. That makes sense. Yeah, I've never thought about it quite in that way before. I like that though. I just made it up just now, so. That's good, <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> um, so going, going back to just after this election for the Special Forces, now you're going into 18 months of training, right? Yeah. And so what does that look like? It's a lot, you know, it's, it's, it's actually, man, it's, we, we say it's, uh, in Special Operations, we say it's like, uh, uh, people ask like, hey, why don't you do something else? And they're like, well, why would I, why would I leave college to go back to high school? Because the academic requirements, the, um, the things that you learn at Camp McCall, in special operations, how to do unconventional warfare, how to conduct sabotage and subversion, all these unique mission sets that make Green Berets who they are, you're inundated in that culture. I mean, I mean, you're doing things that like you see done in movies and training. You're learning foreign languages. Um, you know, I, I learned French. You know, I'm, I'm a six foot one Korean speaking French going to Afghanistan and Iraq. So it's like this completely ox oxymoron life, but you just, you, you become this jack of all trades, truly in, in the um, qualification course. My expertise was weapons. So I was, I was uh, blessed with having the opportunity to become an 18 Bravo, which is a special weapons, special forces weapons sergeant. And uh, I became a master of small arms, foreign arms, big arms, all kinds of weapon systems from across the world to be able to identify them, um, to be able to operate them, um, and to be able to be the tactician expert for the detachment. So um, being the expert to be able to conduct combat operations and conduct tactics. So that on top of small unit tactics where you learn how to do guerrilla warfare, um, where you jump into exercises called Robin Sage, where you're playing a mock war behind enemy lines. I mean, it was it was intense. It was it was the greatest training I've ever had in the military, which was, um, which truly prepared me for combat for war. What about it made it so much better than the other than the other trainings that you had done previously? I think the realism. I think the fact that, you know, when I jumped into Robin Sage, which is the culmination exercise, I linked up with a partisan force, an auxiliary element that I had to train behind enemy lines. You know, the, the mission of a Green Beret is to conduct foreign internal defense, but also, um, you know, special reconnaissance, direct action, counter-peripheration, all these special missions, mission sets. Well, when you, when you actually physically jump in in an exercise, I had a 120 pound ruck in between my legs. I static line jumped into a farm field in the middle of Rockingham, North Carolina, 
into a military exercise where I had to link up with a G chief, a guerrilla chief behind enemy lines. I, I remember it, this, this probably, this probably puts it in perspective in my culmination raid in Robin Sage, I was in a high speed pursuit being pursued by a state trooper who was acting as a bad guy. I was in a horse trailer in the back of a horse trailer. I had a machine gun with shooting blanks, obviously, where I was shooting blanks at a patrol car in a high-speed pursuit on a highway in North Carolina, where I ran out of bullets with my squad automatic machine gun. I transitioned to my M4. I used my M4 carbine with blanks. Transitioned to my pistol. I'm pointing a pistol at a, at a patrol car officer who's a bad guy. And then I pulled out my shotgun. I was shooting my shotgun with blanks at a patrol car who was chasing me in a high-speed pursuit. I had just done a Haas's rescue on a radio um, station that was actually a literal physical station where they record um, <laughs> where they record uh, audio stuff and had conducted a Haas's rescue and then had fleed the scene in the back of a horse trailer. I mean, this stuff was the realest, coolest stuff I've ever done in my career. It was really cool. Wow. I had no idea it was that realistic. Yeah, it was it the the things that you do in Robin Sage were what set me up for the my experiences in war because it was all unconventional, irregular and there was nothing normal that you would see in the conventional uh, military. Did it feel different when you were actually in war when those things were happening in real life? No, it, 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 in a weird way, it didn't because, you know, after Robin Sage, I was in Afghanistan probably a month and some change later. And all the things that we were taught, you know, obviously besides it being actually real, the, the, uh, the foundation and the way that we were going through the motions of planning operations, contingency planning, Rehearsals, all the things they prepared us for were were similar, so it, it actually, um, oddly enough, was similar. Were you were you ever afraid in any of those moments? Because there's, I imagine there's so much pressure to make the right decision or the best possible decision, and you have less than a split second to decide what you're going to do. You you know I was more more fearful of making mistakes and letting. Well, number one, I was more fear, fearful of making mistakes and getting somebody killed um, outside of myself even um, than I was of any fear of danger for myself. So, you know, when I went to Afghanistan, I was in charge by myself. The 18 Bravos are in charge of the Afghan partner force. So I had 144 Afghans and my senior Bravo, the guy who typically mentored me, was injured and he couldn't go. So it was just me. So when I hit the ground, you know, my first combat deployment with a, as a special forces guy was, hey, these are your guys, you're in charge, go to work. So that was intimidating, obviously, but I knew the team was depending on me to make it happen. Um, and so if I didn't know it, I better have figured it out. And so I figured it out, but I was also in charge of the base defense plan for our patrol base, which is a base in the middle of Afghanistan in the middle of nowhere. And, um, I remember the first time that we got attacked, we were rocket attacked and I did a, a base defense plan where I had everybody come out and, f and get prepared for the direct attack. 
But then as we were getting out and I was like literally executing my plan that I had been taught in training and that we were exercising in real world, other rockets were flying over us. And any one of those rockets could have killed anybody on the base. And then I realized that it wasn't smart, right? The, the, the training tactic was you always prepare for an indirect attack, which would be people or troops on the ground. But in, in a, uh, or a direct attack. In an indirect attack, there would be launching mortars or rockets. So I realized then at that moment that if I had my guys going out prepared for the direct attack, while there was an indirect attack happening, I could potentially be launching my guys into a suicide mission. And their immediate action could be running out into a barrage of shrapnel or rockets landing on top of them. And so that occurred to me the first time as an error. And I realized the weight of my responsibilities. And I also realized the uh, humility that you had to have in identifying that your tactic was wrong. And I think that's what makes Green Berets unique is that uh, there is no rigid straight line. We live in the gray and when something's wrong, you fix it immediately. You don't just wait for it to manifest itself into a disaster or a catastrophe, you fix it. Why is that not not the way for everybody? Uh, I think ultimately conventional forces are meant to operate with the least, the most amount of control and the least amount of effort, which requires a delegation authority line where you want entire units and organizations to move on command. And so when you have thinkers free thinking in that kind of conventional aspect, then you have mistakes being made. Um, And then you have uh, what you would see as strategic fluidity um, being displaced and a whole bunch of errors being uh, taking place. That makes sense. So then, what did what did you do in that situation? Was like, was there time to correct it? Like, how did you? On the fly, I didn't correct it. I let it follow through, and we hope for the best because I didn't have time at that time to like change the battle drill because everybody was basically enacting a rehearsal that they had reenacted. And so I stopped, I didn't stop anybody from, from doing that. After it was done, we had a meeting about it and I immediately changed the base defense plan and, and corrected on the fly. And then that became a really a, uh, uh, a behavior that I implemented in my career since then, that, since that early mistake, that tactics, I even do it now in my teaching of tactics, that tactics is an open form of discussion and that no, nobody's individual tactics supersede the conversation of having discussion about potential other options because things change, the enemy changes, the solution isn't always the same the next day or the next moment. Right. Yeah. So then how, how did you get through moments like that? Because, I mean, you're human, you're going to make more mistakes. Like how, when so much is on the line and you make a mistake, how did you get up and keep going and just keep trying better and not, I don't know, not tear yourself apart or be too hard on yourself? You know, I was always hard on myself. I think that's that's probably the biggest criticism that I've been told is like I'm hypercritical about my own standing and not only just life, but also my standard of how I'm being whether that's the best shooter, the best, you know, I like to say, oh, I don't have a competitive like nature to me, but I am, I'm fiercely competitive. 
Um, so for me, when I was laying in my bed alone, you know, in my bunk in Afghanistan on that nine month deployment, I did have beef with myself in making those decisions. But I knew that the culmination of um, whether it was fears or anxieties or pressure on myself, that if they bled into the team, it would affect the overall morale and standing of the team. So I kept that stuff to myself and I knew I had to, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, show my best hand. And that's what typically SF guys do. You know, we're, we're hard on the surface, um, fiercely competitive, uh, fiercely intelligent, um, but believe in the greater good, which is uh, the team. Was it ever hard to continue believing in the greater good outside of your team when you, I mean, I'm sure you saw some some pretty awful things. Yeah, you know, it, it was, but you know, I've, I've always been very realistic in what I understood to be humanity and um, ideology of why we were fighting wars, why we were involved in what we were doing. And so, you know, a lot of people were faced with uh, uh, the morality of the individual decisions that they're faced with in combat. But I knew that my virtue came from a, a good place and that the men I served with came from the, good, the same standing. And so for me, there was no decisions that were uh, neither questionable or you know, adverse to my values. So as long as I maintained the integrity of that, um, which I did, then I was good. I was good through those situations. So it was never, like, you never started questioning people's humanity because there was so much goodness within your team and within yourself and your virtues that despite all of the other things that you saw that was happening happening due to terrorism, like that terrorists were doing, it didn't, it didn't ever not falter you. Um, what did? I mean, it did. It made me scale men on a different playing field. It made me for the first time uh, delineate what savage terrorists were versus what Americans were. And, you know, look, America has its own flaws and its own issues internally. Um, but compared to the ideology, compared to the uh, savagery, the, compared to the oppression that the world faces, it's not even close. And so that, for the first time, was an exposure to what reality is. You know, a lot of people live in a false sense of security because they live in a safe place, which they should. But not having that exposure to what real um, tragedy is, what real oppression is. You know, I, I, I talk about this uh, a lot where people think oppression is what they face in America. There is no amount of oppression. The worst amount of oppression that you could face in America, which I know because I, I work with law enforcement, I've seen it, is still not comparable to the amount of oppression and the amount of terror and uh, destruction that other people face in other places in the world. So seeing that changed my perspective on what, uh, what I thought humanity was. But I'm optimistic because I understand what the greater good is and I understand what the, the uh, 
what good looks like. And so seeing what evil looks like truly puts things in a true perspective for me. Is it ever hard for you being... So are you considered a civilian now? Or are you considered, like, is that... I'm actually, you know, what's weird is I actually think I'm, I'm not, I'm still in the inactive ready reserve as a sergeant major. So I think that means that I could be pulled to if if something happened. Um, but that it soon expires. I actually think it expires this July this year where I'm completely done. So let me rephrase my question. Living in a civilian world now. Is it is it ever hard for you? Like sometimes you just have to like walk out of a room because you are hearing people complain about things where you're just like you oh my god like you have no idea you how good me. you are. You must know me. That's it is very difficult. It is is uh, I think as a nation we're spoiled. I think we do it to ourselves. Um, I think we're entitled. Um, I think our institutions drive a lot of lazy behavior. I think uh, this, uh, what we look at as incentive isn't necessarily incentive, it's actually quite, quite the opposite. So I think as a society, you know, I try to be optimistic and positive in, in everything that I do. But yeah, I do have issues with the direction of our society, but I don't base it like most people do on their glimpses of media um, or what they see on TV or what they see on social media. I base it off the goodness of what I see in people. And so there's a lot of shitty people. There's a lot of crappy people on the earth and planet and you'll run into them. I've ran into them before, but there's also a lot of great human beings. And so if I caption that um, and make that decision based off what I see on CNN, um, then it's not a good reflection of our society. So I'm optimistic outside of a television and my cell phone uh, because of the world I live in, I choose to live in. I don't choose to portal my life through virtual reality through a phone. That's really good. Um, Okay, so going back for a minute, back to Afghanistan, um, you're on your first deployment now, right? And so what, like where are we? What's happening? So I actually was in Northern Afghanistan on the Northeastern border of Pakistan and Afghanistan. I was there um, during Operation Red Wing when uh, Marcus Luttrell was compromised, his team was compromised. Uh, I was part of that mission. When I was deployed, I was deployed there for nine months. I was in a mountain team in 3rd Special Forces Group. Um, Our job was to basically keep all terrorists, uh, which really was the last line of defense for our region, which was Osama bin Laden's stomping grounds, which is known as Nuristan, which is northeast Afghanistan on the east side of the Hindu Kush mountains. And our job was just to keep all the terrorists away from from smuggling themselves, guns, ammunition, even drugs into the southern part of Afghanistan. And so it was a very eventful rotation. Uh, we were in a remote fire base in the middle of nowhere, 12 Americans with uh, our Afghan counterparts. Um, where we were at, we were hours away from any support, um, so we were out on our own. I mean, it was basically the Wild West. You know, I, I teach everyday mobility, which is this concept of utilizing or leveraging your uh, daily driver as a platform for preparedness. And a lot of what we teach comes from our experiences in Afghanistan of rolling around for 
weeks at a time living off of our rigs. I lived off a Defender 110 Land Rover uh, for nine months. And so um, we come back, refit, you know, gas it up and then go out again. So uh, it was an interesting learning curve. It was my propulsion into special operations and it was the best way I think you really could do it is the way we did it. Was there anything, this question might sound like it's out of left field, but all of all of those nine months, I'm assuming, were pretty intense while you were there and you're going nonstop. Was there anything that happened that sticks out as like just a little bit of relief, like a funny moment or something that was just like, okay, you know what, this is really intense right now, but I can keep going because X, Y, Z happened and my load has been lightened a little bit. I, you know, there's, it's funny that I had a, uh, this was the, this was the beginning of uh, social media, right? So MySpace was a big thing. And, and so I thought it was interesting because we used satellite internet and we didn't have really internet. We didn't have communication with our families. It was rare. And so when we got satellite internet, it was very slow. But I had 144 Afghans leading into the winter of Afghanistan, which is basically like Colorado. So it's super, it was super rural there. So they didn't have any, uh, they didn't have any uh, ability to have clothing besides the wool they source from goats, or not from goats, I don't think goats have wool, <laughs> but sheep wool. And I noticed there was a, web, there was a website and it was, to support soldiers who were overseas and deployed. And it was crazy because you would go on and you would tell your story and you sent a picture and people could see that and they would respond by sending you mail, like sending you packages. And this was like in the beginning, like now it's a big thing, right? Care packages for soldiers are, is a huge thing. But well, back then it was like new. And so all these guys were like guys and bases, like actual big bases. And so a lot of those guys had the opportunity to source whatever they wanted from a PX or commissary. So I took a picture of me with a beard, you know, on the back of a Land Rover that was chopped. And I was like, I asked for clothing because I needed clothing for my guys. But I didn't mean, I put like, Amer I didn't say Americans or whatever, I just said my guys. And so there was an overwhelming response to that. I actually had Look, they had to fly a Chinook helicopter, which is a big CH-47, to our fire base once a week. They flew it because of resupply. And they would give us our clothing, our mail, um, you know, new kit and equipment. And so the first time they showed up, it showed up and it was like a kicker pallet, which is a small pallet of mail. And it was all for me. And <laughs> I remember looking at it and I was like, oh man, these are care packages from people from all nine. So that quickly turned into two kicker pallets per week to three to my battalion sergeant major actually asking me to stop doing the mail thing. And so uh, my company sergeant major said to my battalion sergeant major, like that's his right as a soldier to get mail. You have to provide the logistical support. So I had helicopters flying out mail to my fire base what? for months and what I was doing was every time we get, I mean, you're talking, I'm talking about like thousands of boxes, thousands. And what I would do is I would open up a, 
a box in front of all the Afghans to be around me, and I would put on the Santa Claus hat, and I would <laughs> hand out clothing and DVDs, and I had people sending me microwaves, and I was giving it all to the Afghans. I mean, the team, our team guys were well equipped, um, and it's funny because for the rest of that trip, all my guys uh, were wearing like you know Abercrombie shirts and sweaters. <laughs> It was really cool. Like they were wearing shoes. They had all of them had baseball caps, like New York baseball caps. Uh, and it was really cool because for that rest of that trip, um, the the amount of rapport that we built with the Afghans was amazing. What's interesting history is there's only one Green Beret that earned the Medal of Honor in the entire global war on terror, and his name is Robert Miller. Robert Miller was an 18 Bravo on a third special forces group team that I knew that came to my fire base after I rotated out of there and he was in charge of those same guys and those same guys fought with him in that big battle and were by his side when that, that took place. He perished and was earned the Medal of Honor um, fighting against the enemy trying to save his uh, he did he saved his teammates life but those same Afghans that we built rapport with were the same Afghans that died by his side that were actually perished with him, but that were also fighting for him. And that's interesting, just the correlation of how, how that works out. But I want to think that somehow, you know, some of that rapport that we, that we instilled in them was the rapport that Rob was able to continue in the relationships that we built. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it was really cool. Was it, was it difficult? starting to build that rapport I imagine you're an American they're not they is is the initial feeling like distrust from like do they not trust you <laughs> yeah you know that part of Afghanistan which is really <coughs> disconnected from the rest of Afghanistan is very untrust untrusting to any Westerner I mean they there's parts of that po- place that they thought we were Russians from the 80s. I mean, they didn't even realize that we were Americans. They didn't even know what America was. They don't have running water, they don't have electricity, they have nothing. So some of it has to do with the connection um, with technology and even understanding who we were and what our mission was. But there was an educational process that took place. But I remember some distinctive things that we had to do to build rapport. You're, you're not ultimately taught how to build rapport. I mean, it's something that you, you kind of learn, but it has to be more instinctually. And I remember one of the first ways I built rapport is there was a little, what's crazy is the Afghans up there, they look like me. They look, the Nuristanis have Mongolian blood in them. And, um, and I I'm obviously have Mongolian blood in me, but I grow a red beard. And so my beard is fully grown, it's red, and I have red tint in my hair. And so they identify me as like one of them almost, that I'm from the same region. And so they got a kick out of that. And I remember the first times that we shot together, they made me shoot a competition with one of their best shooters. And this is, cr- this is crazy, because I remember this like it was yesterday. But they took a piece of gum wrapper and stuck it on a target at 25 meters. And this thing was probably about an inch by one inch. I could barely see it. And they put it up and 
um, <laughs> their best shooter took a shot at it with an AK-47. And he missed. And they said, whoever gets closest to it uh, wins. So everybody's watching. you got to imagine the pressure. But I like pressure. I think the tomb taught me pressure. When you're performing a guard change in front of thousands of people as a kid, trying to be perfect, I think it, it, it makes you good at pressure. Yeah, and if you if you drop the gun, oh yeah, it's all over. You're done. Yeah. Okay. It's over. And so I got behind the gun at 25 meters, and it was his AK-47, the same gun. And I knew that he had a hold. I knew he was right-eye dominant, right-handed. And so I just made the adjustment of his hold because I, th- I was thinking that, you know, we saw the sights similarly. And I took the shot. And we went over to the target. We all walked up and everybody's like, oh, super motivated. And they're like, I know my Afghan brother won. And we look for the paper and it's not there. But there's a hole in the paper on the target, but there's no sticker. And so they're like, oh, you missed, you missed. And then one of the Afghans go, no, 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 no. And he goes and picks up a piece of paper and I shot a hole through the stick what? paper. Yeah, he picked it up and he's like, oh my God. And they started cheering. And then like, you know, they picked me up and, you know, in Afghan culture, um, they're not egotistical, right? You know, if you beat somebody, it's like an honor. And, and they want you to teach them. And so after that moment, they knew they're like, he's the expert. And they're going to listen. So I remember for the rest of the trip, you know, I could stand out of the car. I could, I can get up out of the, the Land Rover with my gun and I would just look at a hilltop and they would gauge my reaction. It's kind of like, it's obvious to say this, but it's like Pearl, right? Because Pearl senses me. She knows my behavior. They could sense my behavior and they would run to wherever I needed them to protect us, to provide protection because they were like our local, um, Bodyguards, they protected us when we went on patrols. It was just amazing. It was a, it was a really cool to experience. Now you you deployed a total of fifteen times. Is that right? Yeah, before so I did I did uh, eight trips to combat and seven trips to uh, um, austere environments for contracting. Okay. Yeah. So how many times did you go to Afghanistan? I went to Afghanistan two times. Did you? get to see some of the same like did you get to work with some of the same people I did a little bit I actually did a little bit um they were there was about a f- six year gap in between t- rotations because I rotated to Iraq four times in between those two Afghan rotations um but I didn't as much as I wanted to like I would love you know I would love to go back uh one day and just just to go to that town. It's a small town called Naray, Afghanistan. It'd be really cool to go back there. So, and Afghanistan is very different from Iraq, correct? Afghanistan very is different. very rural, whereas Iraq is much more like they have microwaves. Absolutely, like a city. I mean, oh. it's just, I mean, completely different. So were your missions in both places similar in that they were counterterrorism or just very different altogether? I think they were all, they were really different altogether. I think, you know, in Afghanistan, I did do some targeting, which means that we were deliberately going after bad guys in Afghanistan, but it was very rural and just very open. Uh, a lot of the stuff that I did in Iraq was very, uh, intimate. You know, we were very engaged. Uh, it was very dynamic, very violent. When I was there, I did the, uh, 06, 07, 08, 09 rotations. And I'd say, you know, 
historically speaking, 06, 07, 08 were like the height of the global war on terror in Iraq. So it was the most violent years of uh, the war. May I ask if there's a particular instance that that you remember pretty vividly? Yeah, you know, I, I talk about it, and I, I think we talked about it at dinner, you know, the Vinny thing. You know, I had a, a Belgian Malinois that saved my life in Iraq. You know, that same rotation in, in 2007 was significant. I mean, I, I didn't feel like, you know, I was in a gunfight. I've been in gunfights where I was throwing grenades at bad guys. I was in close proximity. And, but I never felt like it was like this epic, you know, close call. I mean, yeah, you can call them close calls. When a bullet flies by your helicopter in the middle of the night, um, it's a close call. But for me personally, based on my scale, it wasn't. I have friends who've been blown up, shot out of the sky, you know, shot themselves, you know, everything that bad could happen to, to somebody. I've, I've seen that happen to peers. So, you know, my combat and the relationship between uh, my experience and some of their experiences, mine seems mild to say the least compared to some of my peers. Did anything change for you between being in training and knowing that, one, you were firing blanks and, two, the other person was firing blanks at you? Did anything change between that and actually, like, having something blow up next to you because somebody's actually trying to kill you? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because there's a lot of things that remain the same, right? The When you have explosions going off, your brain, if you're trained in it, reacts to it like it's training. That's the whole point, right? It's the uh, stress inoculation that, you know, when you're inundated with uh, stress and you're able to react and respond to it, you can get through it. And that's the point. Um, But yeah, seeing teammates injured, having teammates killed, that brings the the reality to it. You know, that brings the trauma to it. I've, I've, I've been to a lot of funerals. I've had a lot of teammates killed. And so, um, that reality you can't you can't replicate in training you know and that's something that um it you can only experience and after it's experience which is associated obviously with trauma um that's the worst of it i think that's the worst that you could experience may i ask about what's on your wrist yeah so i have a kia bracelet of a buddy of mine named uh, ben bittner and he was a teammate of me and Kurt's, you know, me and Kurt run Philcraft Survival. Um, and he was killed, uh, really, the anniversary was a few days ago. Uh, but he was killed on 23 April 2011 in Kandahar. But we were teammates on the first our first team together. We actually served in another team afterwards in a sniper detachment. And then, um, you know, I, I've known him, his wife, and his son, um, since I was in Special Forces since I began. And so he actually was killed leading his guys in combat. He actually stepped on a, a pressure plate IED that ended his life. Ironically, his wife, uh, he met his wife in Kandahar, Afghanistan, because she was in the Army as well. She's a veteran. But he also, he, his life was ended in Kandahar, Afghanistan as well. And so it's it's tragic, but uh, been just like all the men that were killed in combat that I served with, died doing what they love the most. And 
you know, not even comparing it to the love of family and children and loved ones, it's different. It's outside of that. I mean, they died doing what they love passionately, um, which is serving and uh, fighting for their country. And they, you know, I, I, my whole life thought I would meet that same fate and it didn't scare us. It didn't scare, I don't think it scared any of my, the guys that I served with. It's kind of a, um, it was something that was widely accepted in, in that community. Is it, is it more that it's worth it enough that it's too painful to sit idly by and watch watch everything happen and not be able to contribute and somehow make a difference in the world? Yeah. I, I think that's a commonality that is a characteristic of special operations period, of men who serve in special operations, which is a, uh, really a will to fight. And so whether we were fighting, serving our country, we'd be fighting in some capacity to do something great um so yeah what are you what are you most proud of during all of your deployments or really all just just in general actually what are you most proud of i think i'm most proud of the experiences that i shared with um a unique band of human beings that uh, were the best are the best the world has to offer. I mean, just being around, I mean, when my first sniper detachment that I served on, the guys that I served with were superheroes to me. And I don't think, I mean, even when I compare myself now to those men, I don't think I even come close. And that's okay. Because I think from each of those men, specifically, I gathered these characteristics that make me try to be better every single day. And so I'm most proud of being in their shadow and serving with those guys and being a part of that experience. Because it's like, it literally to me was like serving with superheroes, with my idols. And that's something that will never change. I mean, despite even the age difference of, um, those men being peers to me in rank and age, to me, they were, I mean, they are, uh, you know, men I look up to. What are some of the characteristics that they have? Oh, it's so many. Or like, what are, I guess here's a better question. If you could, and, or this is a harder question, one of the two, okay. if you could look at all those characteristics and instill the bulk of the planet with like two of those, two of those characteristics, what would you, which characteristics would you choose? I think, uh, first I would choose commitment. Um, not a lot of people want to commit in life. And when they do, it's haphazardly. It's with caution. Whether that's a, a goal, a dream, a relationship, they just don't want to be involved. And so, and they're always looking for an out. And what I learned from men like Jason, Kevin, Damon, Ben, um, is the fact that when they put their heart and soul into something, they committed to it, they were following through and they were never faltering. Um, another 
aspect uh, and characteristic that I learned that I've applied to my life now is humility. The most dangerous men on the planet I serve with. There's no doubt. I mean, these men could kill you with their bare hands easily. But they're the same men who would go into a burning, not a burning with flames, but a burning with gunfire, grenades, explosions, and pick up a child and pull them out of that. And that kind of humility, um, being faced with, you know, the most savage human beings on the planet and fighting them, but still have the humility to understand the big picture that saving and protecting innocent and oppressed people is the objective is very, um, very valuable in a lesson that I learned over the experiences that I had with these men. Because you, you know, when you go into it, you don't know what, you don't know what war is and you kind of gauge what war is based on what everybody else is doing because nobody really understands unless they've been there and they've done that. And so the senior guys who've been to war, you kind of gauge how you're acting and supposed to behave based off of what they're doing. And those men that I served with were the most empathetic to human beings when they would burn down the most evil human beings, but at the same time able to still have that humility. And that, that for me, uh, especially with the amount of destruction and evil I've seen in the world, and those men have seen, was has changed my life and my perspective. Um, did, that, did that actually happen? The thing with the... It, it did. It actually happened. There's a buddy of mine who runs the nonprofit um, Gold Star Teen Adventures, and his name's Kent. Uh, Kent is a battalion commander of their special forces group. He was shot four times in combat, lost his leg, and he's still serving as an amputee. And we were on a, a direct action raid in Iraq, burned down a whole bunch of bad guys, and there was a child in the middle of it all. And I vividly remember him picking up that child in the middle of everything that was happening and, and rescuing that kid and focused on saving that kid's life in the middle of chaos. And um, that kind of humility is what, you know, I, I, it's, it's stored as glimpses and partitioned as memories in my mind. But it's the, that's the reference God that I use in like, living my life moving forward so yeah you literally have your inspiration right by your side all the time yeah it's it's uh on top of a whole bunch of other things it's vividly impacting my life daily it's it's, it's easy as blinking and referencing you know? so how have how have I mean, obviously, all of these things, that's a whole, almost like a whole other life that you've lived, yeah. have vastly shaped who you are and what you've chosen to do with your life. How was it for you getting out of being on active duty and taking those next steps that were so different from everything you had been doing? 
Um, it was difficult. It still is. I mean, it's difficult. It's difficult to go. It's difficult to be in a tribe of the most elite human beings on the planet um, with the empathy, with the uh, humbleness, and then look to source that same kind of feeling in civilian life, whether it's in relationships and love or in friendships and civilians. You just can't ever seem to find what you're looking for. So it becomes a search. And I think um, it takes a lot of looking at your life in a different optic and a different lens to be able to realize that they're not one and the same. They're two different life experiences and they don't have to be tied together. And so that took a lot and it still take, it takes a, a daily effort of um, educating myself through experience of what um, I did and what I'm doing now. Is how, how do you not compare the two? I mean, is it more of just a I need to not compare the two, so you know what, I'm not going to let myself do that, or how do you do that? I just, I think that just comparing anything, um, comparing anyone sets you up for uh, failure. And, you know, it's just like, uh, you know, it's just like trying to compare you know, someone in your life to your first love, you would never insult the person in your life by comparing the two um, because it's different. And so my first love was the army and that, that was literally my commitment. Unfortunately, I pissed away a lot of relationships and experiences because of that love. Um, because it's the only thing I really cared about. Um, so now looking at this life, now it's different in the sense that that priority is not there. The priority to serve, to be with my brothers in combat, it's not there anymore. So now I have to source my own purpose. It's different. How has that been? Um, honestly, it's one day at a time. It's, it's getting easier now, I don't think it's getting easier. That's probably lying. I think it's just with time really gets to the point to the end where it tells the ultimate story, the overall story. So I'm just living and I'm just doing the best I can and there is no comparison. And so the experiences that I choose to live in this life now I don't even try to compare to what I've experienced before because there is no comparisons. Like you said, it's two different lives. Like when I sit here and talk to you, this is impactful. Like I love this experience because um, it's something that I don't get to do often. And so these are the kind of experiences that I lean on more than anything else because this is the closest that I get to living that life again in some way. Now, at one point or another, you got you got injured. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I've been injured a couple of times on active duty. 
and one of them had you injured pretty badly. Yep, I've so I've been injured pretty badly in a free fall accident. Um, combatives, but you know, shrapnel um, in my forehead. But I, you know, the culmination of everything um, wears you down, and I think of over the past two decades of service. Hell, I, I remember even being broke as a tomb guard, knocking my feet and my knees together and standing like that for, I mean, I had a stress fracture in my hip bone when I was 19 years old from being at the tomb. Um, so yeah, it's just the culmination of a whole bunch of little things that add up to be big things. TBI, I mean, I've been blown up lots of times been exposed to breaches and explosions. Um, I think that's just a common trait of somebody who's been in special operations. You don't need to be directly injured in combat. The severity of being an athlete, a professional athlete really, for your career takes a, a beating. Is that, is that why you stop being in active duty and stop going on deployments or why why no. did you take a different because you changed course at one point I right? did yeah the deviation I, yeah, yeah you're right yeah it's true it is the deviation I think you know what's funny is I didn't people ask me that a lot they say hey you did 18 years did you get out medically or did you medically retire I didn't you know I'm 80% disabled now I just actually it's funny I just took a uh, um, the sleep test sleep apnea test and I and I took, I did the hookup machine and everything, and I have sleep apnea. I was diagnosed with it like last week. And so, you know, which is a culmination of a whole bunch of issues that leads into, with, through lack of sleep. Um, but when I got off of active duty, I actually got off active duty because I was recruited by a government agency to go into another field. I had finished my bachelor's degree, um, which took me 15 years to finish which is a huge accomplishment. Uh, actually one of the biggest accomplishments, I think, because of the, long, the longevity or the, uh, how long it took me to get my degree. Um, but that You're opened busy the doing a couple other things. Yeah, just a few, just, just a few. But that, that degree allowed me to open the doors to federal um, service. So I was interested in a couple government organizations, um, three-letter organizations. And so I wanted to do a couple of jobs and Instead, I did the contract version of those jobs and decided that's not what I wanted to do. I didn't want to be like a soldier um, living that life. I, wanted, I actually wanted to have a family. I wanted to start a family. So um, I shifted trajectory and, and um, decided I want to start a company. Were you surprised when you made that decision? Surprised that like that great first love had had shifted? I was. I still am. It, it, I am because honestly, that's how I envisioned my life. Like I envision. If you were to ask me three years ago how I envisioned the next ten years, I would say I would be in the crappiest place on the planet fighting the crappiest people on the planet with the best men on the planet. And so I was willing to accept that fate 
that that would be my life. And I was completely content with that. And really nothing specific happened or, um, it was just a change in really what I thought I could become or what I thought was my, um, potential. And so I know business was my potential because I grew up kind of that in that entrepreneur family. And so it's something that I wanted to try. And with the level of commitment and dedication, discipline that you grew up with and then learned more of. Yeah, I thought it was an easy transition. I thought it was an easy, and it was. I mean, fair, business to me is fairly simple um, in the way that I think about it. It's complex in uh, the amount of adaptability that you have to have, but really it's a singular objective and um, as long as you have kind of good virtuous reasons for being in business uh, I think anybody could be successful and that's what I've tried to, I mean me and Kurt try to promote that it's like hey why set yourself up to work for another government organization why set yourself up to work for somebody else you have all the talent to serve yourself and your own family by starting something from scratch and it seems like through Fieldcraft Survival, you've been able to really bring everything together. Yeah, it's, it's odd. I mean, it's, when you say it like that, um, it makes me think that the reality is I, we're literally designing a company to make us feel better, to make us feel like we're still serving. And that's really how it is. I mean, we created a tribe, which is a community based in the same mindset and the same principles. Um, we developed the training and skill sets that we taught as Green Berets to host nations. And for teaching Afghans and Iraqis and Libyans, why aren't we teaching Americans? Um, and really has developed a, uh, a business model of creating a lifestyle that's really what me and Kurt or me and any special operations guys uh, that I serve with lift, which is what we wear, how we talk, how we educate ourselves, our mindset, our physical fitness or everything. So, yeah. I think it's really cool. I, I, I really do. I mean, I feel like you're continuing your service just in a different way and instead of fighting the bad guys you're uh, for lack of better phrasing you're you're helping fellow americans be able to fight their own bad guys yeah i think if you will no no i think that's that's true i think it's whether it's uh fighting by bad guys and uh creating a better mindset um or physically and literally fighting bad guys and the level of, of your preparedness, I think it ties into uh, to service. You know, I don't, I, I have no, I don't care about money and I never have, I've never had it. I mean, I didn't have shoes going through high school because my mom couldn't afford tennis shoes. I, I wore flip flops. Um, my mom didn't have her first car until I was 16 years old. I walked everywhere. I grew up in a mobile home where I could touch every single wall as a 15-year-old kid, 
um, in my bedroom um, just by spreading eagle. Um, growing up in the army, you don't get rich by being in special operations. In, in fact, it's com completely the opposite. Um, you, you're not paid well. And so doing this really is for service. It's really for giving back. Um, if my, my, my cute little mountain cabin in Colorado burned to the ground right now, as long as I had my family and friends and uh, the ability to give back, I'd be completely content with that, completely. So that's the most important thing? 100%, I think, uh, like I think, like I think giving back sets anybody's um, any setbacks that you face in life, uh, whether it's your own, because of your own demise, um, it suppresses all the darkness that you can easily allow in because of some of the toxic toxicity that we are exposed to in life. So you take a guy like myself or and many others who have experienced more toxicity, more bad things in life, and you give us an outlet to help people, and it, it's therapy. It really is. And so partially, selfishly, what I do um, in giving back is for myself. And so as long as I'm giving back and helping influence um, being positive, um, despite my own flaws and uh, my own issues, then I could live uh, this life in this civilian space and be okay with it. It's almost similar to what we were talking about earlier in regards to being a leader and how it almost made it easier to go through what you were going through because you were helping other people and focused on on that to an extent. No, it is. It is. I, I actually make this funny... Um, comparison in the same space where when I used to have anxiety in doing something let's say we were jumping out of an airplane together and jumping out of an airplane for me is fun when it's over but during it I'm like this is scary <laughs> but I've done it hundreds of times but I want to be the first one out of the airplane not because partially because I want you to go he leads from the front but mostly because I want to get it over with. And so there's a selfish part of me that, in that instance, wants to be the first to step up and volunteer when things are bad. And I think in this business that we've um, started and developed, it's the same premise, that I want to be on the front end of pioneering, whatever it may be, and then we're on the back end of it. And I want to get out there and not be fearful, mostly because I'm helping myself in some way. So what does the future look like? So um, I think for Phil Cross Survival, the future looks like creating structure to kind of more complex understandings and preparedness. Like when people will say, when people say, hey, I want to be prepared. The next question is like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, what do you even mean by that? And so even how we define it, you know, me and Kurt define 
preparedness through everyday carry, what you carry on your person, what you carry in your equipment, your mindset, your physical capability. It's all encompassing. And we call that modern survival. But we also define it as everyday mobility, which is the evolution of your rucksack. You know, it's the evolution of your capabilities. If you have a small med kit and a tourniquet in your pocket, then you would have a large med bag inside of your vehicle. Because the reality is if you get hurt, I don't want a dude showing up with a tourniquet. I want an ambulance showing up with capability. So you can create your own capability. So educating people with that, with that, um, that understanding is the future. And I think also continuing to educate people on preparedness and let them know that it's not scary. It's not some um, you know, impossible feat to learn how to shoot a gun, learn how to apply a tourniquet, learn how to be more re resilient and have better willpower, more, learn how to be more mindful. All those things are things that we learned as uh, Green Berets in the military, but it's something that, uh, uh, you know, we use the term urbanite because uh, I don't have a better term than, than that, but an urbanite in the middle of the city who's concerned with their own life and everything that's going on could be exposed actually more so than anybody in a rural environment. And so if they're comfortable with taking our courses, with learning, with understanding what we're putting out there, with increasing their capability with equipment, then uh, that's the future. We'll continue to do that, continue to push our, our own content, our own value, our own training, um, and see where it goes. Sounds really great. Yeah, one day at a time, we'll see. Well, thank you so, so much for letting me interview you. It's It's been a real pleasure and a real honor. No, this is awesome. This is actually the longest podcast I've ever done, <laughs> which is cool. But uh, I, you know, I appreciate the fact that you're doing a podcast. It reminds me of Tim Ferriss's podcast, right? Tim, Tim Ferriss's podcast is taking subject matter experts. But the reality is that we live amongst a whole bunch of great people who have a whole bunch of great things, including life experience that could change the world. And you bringing those people on this podcast and um, extracting that information, which you're, you're very good at. You could be a tactical interrogator for the CIA. Um, you being able to do that uh, is only going to improve people's lives. And um, I'm looking forward to, to listening to those podcasts and learning from their experiences and, um, and seeing where it goes. So thanks for having me on. Thank you. You're welcome.